The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. A lot of interesting legal news in the news today. You know, Mitch, there's always legal news out there. I was looking at the paper the other day after we had a conversation about doing sort of a mixed grill today, and it dawned on me that virtually every story you read in a newspaper, I don't really care which paper it is, there's always a legal issue lurking, isn't there? Yeah, that's exactly right, Stephen. I'm glad you brought it up because that was the premise of this program. Let's see. I guess it's over three years ago when we started. that We felt there were articles literally every day that individuals hear about that have legal underpinning. And the purpose of the program was to discuss them, provide a little more information, and hopefully provide a little better understanding. Yeah, I think that's right, Mitch. And uh, you and I talked about today's program, and we decided that because we've discussed so many robust topics over the past few months, that it's given us an opportunity to maybe reflect upon many of them and just expand a little bit uh, and pick and choose because there's certainly a large menu. We've talked about a lot of issues. We now have several bills going up before or to the governor's office in California. And then there's some uh, other issues we can loop back to uh, expand upon. So if I could brag just a moment on on something we're in involved in, and you know, you and I don't talk a lot about on air about specific issues that we're involved in, but this is one that's a statewide issue that I think I, normally you know lawyers don't talk about their clients and and things. But I'd like to talk about an experience I had this past week. I had the opportunity to ask the Supreme Court of California of whether they would hear an issue that I'm involved in in oral argument. Now, how cool is that? Wow. Do do tell. (laughs) Well, obviously, as the president and dean of, of a series of law schools, we're very active with the state bar. And one of the things we're looking at changing here in California is the minimum passing score of the state bar exam. It turns out that it hasn't been 
adjusted or evaluated seriously in 70 years. That's seven zero, 70 years. And we're asking the California Supreme Court, who has the authority to set the score on the bar exam, to reevaluate it. And so they said, as is very typical, present all of our arguments in writing, which we did and which others have done. And then we've decided, well, you know, sometimes you get to ask them whether they'll hear oral argument. So we did. And they said no. But it was fun to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm glad you brought the topic up, Mitch, because, you know, the one thing I just wanted to to share with our listeners is that each state sets their standard for passing rates for the bar exam. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. It ranges, it's a 2,000 point scale and it ranges anywhere from roughly about 1,300 points to pass up to Delaware that's the most difficult which is 1,450. And California is number two in the country at 1,440. But the vast majority of the states have a national norm of 1,350. So that's what we're asking the Supreme Court to consider in our written filing, is why is California set their score at 1,440 when the national norm is 1,350? And our concern, and this is the, the serious part about it, is our concern is it may be barring certain people from being licensed in California after they've passed law school, after they've passed the multi-state professional responsibility exam, after they've passed their moral character and fitness. They still have to take the bar exam. And if they've qualified on all of those other things, we want to make sure that California isn't isn't setting their score at an unreasonable or arbitrary level. And as it wouldn't surprise you, our argument is we think that they may be, and that's why we're asking the court to evaluate that. Yeah, that's really interesting, Mitch, and uh, I've been tracking your crusade to, to get there, and it's uh, quite a laudable effort. Um, I gather the, the issue uh, relative to there being 70 years without any adjustment, that's got to be pretty novel, right? Well, it was quite surprising, actually. I didn't even know that until this discussion started and the state bar was asked to, to, to explain at an Assembly Judiciary Committee hearing how they set the score. Why is California so high? Why is it so different than every other state in the United States? And they said, well, back in the 1950s, Uh, We set the score at what we thought was about a 70 pass rate, 70%. And that equated to approximately 1440, and we've just left it that way ever since. So uh, we were really quite surprised because under California state law and in many other states, most licensing exams – and if you think about it, Stephen, there's a lot of things that get licensed, doctors and architects and engineers and chiropractors. And I mean, there's just many, many state licensing requirements. Uh, most of them require that a licensing exam be scientifically validated about every five to seven years. And, and so it was really quite surprising to find out that it had been 70 
years without the state bar validating their test score. So that's that's underway, and that's the discussion. And I think we're probably going to have an answer within about six weeks. So it'll so happen pretty quickly. What, what does the um, refusal to hear oral arguments signal, Mitch? What's that mean? Actually, I believe it really signals that the court is on a fast track to make this decision, and oral arguments would have could possibly have caused some delay to get notice out there to allow people time to prepare. I think it was the court saying, "Thank you very much. We we see what you sent in writing. Uh, That's enough for us to make our decision." And then, Mitch, just briefly before we close on this topic, the the goal in the testing methodologies is to test proficiency at minimal competency levels or or some kind of an average base. How would you define that? Well, that's right. And that is actually a a good point for people to understand that there's a – the standard is the – the minimal competency for the first year of law practice. And before everybody gets terrified and go, oh my goodness, you know, this t- test is only to, to test whether a lawyer has minimal competency, how can that be enough? But if you think about licensure rules, the, the idea is to become licensed in a profession, everybody has to start somewhere and most of us learn our craft in the course of practice. You you sometimes you work with mentors, you work in other firms. Nobody knows everything they need to know the very first day they're licensed in a profession. And and lawyers are the same way. The bar exam is supposed to measure the minimum competency for the first year of law practice. No more, no less. It says that you're ready to get started and to start to learn your craft and, and begin your your career as a lawyer and the concern that we were we've brought before the court is that if the national norm is a score of 1350 to measure the minimal competency why is california requiring a passing score of 1440 yeah, no, I get it. And then the spirit behind the spirit behind the the move for an adjustment is that there may be a potential disparate impact. Am I right? There is. Uh, perhaps the greater greater issue is that we're just worried that there's a lot of qualified lawyers that would be available to help people. And California is an enormous state. A, a lot of people say, "Well, aren't there too many lawyers?" Well, look, there may be plenty of lawyers in L.A. and San Francisco, but you and I both know, having had experience in rural counties and rural communities, that many times small towns have no lawyers. And so our, our belief is that the, the disparate impact can be geographic, which means that there are too few lawyers available in the smaller and rural communities across California. And there is some question we're raising about whether there's a disparate impact based on race, which could violate some other state laws. Okay, so a number, a number of categories that fall under the disparate impact. You don't necessarily uh, fixate on one. There could be a number of issues. Mitch, that's, that's a great topic to get at. I know we can spend, you specifically could probably go, we can go to midnight on the topic because, <laughs> no, seriously, because you're so vested in it and it, it's great. that I, it's, a, it's a really laudable crusade. The last thing I want to say about it, Mitch, for our listeners' benefit is that this is all transparent. It's playing out and... Uh, in an open forum, uh, anybody can have access to the development on this issue, right? And I'd let, let, why don't you share a little bit on that? 
That's exactly right. You can go, when, when the Supreme Court, in this case, when the Supreme Court opens up a formal case, uh, they will have a Dropbox, which is a, a web-based access of an f- electronic file cabinet that anybody can go log in and just look at what has been filed. So this is all going to happen. Uh, you can just log into the Supreme Court of California and look at the case, look up for case files. And each case pending will have a case file, and you can click and read the pleadings that have been filed by all the parties, unless they've filed and asked for something to be kept confidential for a reason that would have to qualify under the rules of court. Yeah, that's great. So there's your consumer alert. Let's, hey, Mitch, let's let's shift into a couple other topics, and I'll let you go first. Uh, give me a headline. What jumps well, out at you? Let me let me just segue in from, as I mentioned, one of the things you have to do before you become licensed as an attorney is pass the, the what we call MPRE, the Multi-State Professional Responsibility Exam. It's an exam that's used in every single state. It's a mul- That's why it's the multi-state, which means that you not only need to study legal ethics and professionalism, you have to pass an exam on it. But there were two lawyers in Washington, D.C. this past week that I think maybe need a refresher course. Uh, the headline was that Ty Cobb and John Dowd, two extremely high-profile and very experienced lawyers in Washington, D.C., who happened to have a client by the name of Donald J. Trump, were caught in an outdoor restaurant, right there, a sidewalk restaurant, talking loudly about their client and a specific case they were working on. And Stephen, you and I know that's about as fundamental of a blunder on the issue of attorney-client privilege that an attorney could make. It, it is potentially, Mitch, but set the stage a little bit more with some more detail. Where was this restaurant located? Well, this, is, this restaurant happened to be located, believe it or not, just next door to the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Oh, so, my <laughs> goodness. So the restaurant could have been named the Beehive. It could have been. In this case, it was called BLT, and it, it, it hit national news because, no surprise, two tables away were one of the, na- the, the national f- uh, investigative reporters for the New York Times also having lunch, and he's just listening to them talk about this confidential information about the case they're representing for Donald J. Trump. Well, you just set the table for some very intriguing legal issues. Um, you know, one having to do, obviously, as you mentioned, having to do with ethics and professional responsibility. The other has to do with expectation of privacy and whether or not those conversations can actually be privileged in some way. And, of course, the answer is going to be uh, you picked the wrong spot to be discussing that topic. But uh, we can expand upon it. I see we're coming up on our first break, Mitch, but there's a couple of ways to go on that issue, and I can expand on a couple of topics. I did not see the story, but I'm assuming that the listening post um, was actually able to pick up the content of the conversation. Would I be right? You'd be right. Oh, boy. Okay, so 
When we come back from the break, we'll pick up on that conversation. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. And we're just doing a mixed grill today, talking about a number of topics. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're having a discussion about a variety of topics today. And the last one we were addressing before the break uh, had to do with a story um, out of uh, Washington, D.C. area where two uh, White House-connected attorneys were overheard discussing a matter uh, at a table in an outdoor restaurant. Is that the right setting, Mitch? 
It is, Stephen, and, and you framed it perfectly well because I, the point I'd like to make on this, although as interesting it is, it is to see when you know, leaks happen, and that's been a big issue over the past several months, but, but this goes to the point of when you go to meet with your attorney and you talk with him, what is your expectation of privacy? And, and I have to tell you that I, I worked, when I was in Dallas, Texas, earlier in my career, I worked at one of the very big law firms. And we were on the 27th floor of a high-rise. And we were constantly reminded to watch what we say on the elevator. Because, you know, you're talking with somebody walking down the hall. You're going to go down and grab some lunch. And the two of you, you're talking about a case. You get on the elevator. But you and I both know there could be five, six, seven, eight, ten people there. You don't know who those people are. People get on at all the different floors. And we were constantly reminded to, to never talk about client matters on the elevator and then in a public restaurant. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I also received very good grounding on that topic, too, very early on in my legal career. And it was actually as a non-lawyer, it was as a legal assistant, I was often involved in initial client meetings with a law firm, civil law firm, that I worked for in the Bay Area. And uh, there were very, very clear rules in place in our office to maintain privacy because the privilege begins as soon as a potential client goes to meet with a law firm. So even when a client is is courting uh, business opportunities with an attorney and they go to meet with an attorney to discuss their matter, even though there isn't a formal retention or a formal agreement uh, developed at that stage, all of that's privileged information. And the attorney and the attorney's staff are all honor-bound to keep that privilege. In other words, um, to not divulge any information. You know, what's interesting about having a um, chit-chat at a outdoor restaurant about legal issues is the forum and the setting. Um, we've had this discussion before within the context of, I think we talked about it in Fourth Amendment context, but... There's no expectation of privacy when you're having a discussion about a legal matter at an outdoor two-top or four-top table. Uh, it's expected that other people will be around, so-called eavesdroppers that would hear uh, the conversation. So those conversations are not going to be cloaked with attorney-client privilege to the extent that uh, the information cannot be subsequently used or divulged. So that's a caveat emptor scenario. That's exactly right. Well, the the key here is that it was just very, very poor professional behavior. The damage goes to the client. So the issue is that if they've injured a client by allowing private information to be released, it's the client's it's the client's right. It's the client's information. And, and it's just shocking to me that lawyers would ever be that cavalier to forget that, that they're the caretaker of that privileged information from the client. That's the essential premise of attorney-client privilege is that you're the caretaker of it. Let me, let me tell you one story I, I experienced, which was very interesting, shows how strict this is. You know, when somebody calls you up to, to investigate where they they'll hire you as the lawyer, they have to tell you a certain amount of information before you can make the judgment. 
And there are times when a client, a potential client, will share information about why they need a lawyer, and then there's a point when you realize you have a conflict of interest, that you have another client that is that is as a conflict with this client. You're duty-bound to immediately alert the person you're talking with that, no, you're unable to take that case. You do have a conflict of interest. But m- even more interesting, you are duty-bound that you cannot tell your client anything that that individual divulges to you, even though it may be in opposition to your client's interest. Because that's how strict this concept of attorney-client privilege and privacy is. Yeah, that's, that's, people that's, didn't realize that. No, that's right, Mitch. That is a good point. And in fact, in the civil realm, when attorneys field calls from potential clients, what typically will happen is uh, an administrative staff member, very often a paralegal or an assistant of some sort, would actually do an intake call and initially get the names of all potential parties involved. And just as you mentioned, that's done for purposes of clearing or maybe even confirming that there is a conflict. So good, good message. That's a good consumer alert. Issue. So let's, let's move into some of the other issues. You, you had a, a, an issue you wanted to talk about that had to do with, was it victim compensation? Yeah, I did mention it's one, you know, we talked about Marcy's Law once before, uh, I think it was probably a couple of years ago, but um, it dawned on me that we're coming up on almost the 10-year anniversary of Marcy's Law. Um, It was enacted in November of 2008, not that I'm rushing the calendar or or anything, but it is kind of coming up on a 10-year anniversary, and uh, Marcy's Law is a law that... uh, really gave a lot more um, power in the in the form of information to victims. So it's the California Victims Bill of Rights that we've discussed before in our in our show. Uh, and it's a very, very important uh, right and a very, very important facet to most prosecution uh, offices, most DEA offices. They, very often have a victim witness unit, and I've been working closely with ours lately. Um, we're very fortunate in San Luis Obispo to have a extremely professional group in our victim witness uh, advocacy division. And the issue of restitution has come up in a couple of cases recently, and crime victims have a right to restitution. And so there are to folks that might not know what is restitution. Yeah, so restitution would be um, compensation for losses suffered as a result of being a crime victim. And one classic example might be medical expenses that were incurred as a result of, uh, let's see, say a crime of violence. Um, the medical expenses and the monies that are incurred or expenses that are incurred, can be recovered um, as part of the plea and the sentence. So if a defendant is in fact uh, ruled guilty or found guilty by trial or by plea, part of the sentence will actually include restitution. And, you know, if you look at the origin in in California, there's a penal code section, it's 1202.4, that has legislatively been uh, 
on the books since 1995, which actually gives the right of the courts to impose restitution, sometimes called fines, uh, for various crimes. Marcy's law expanded uh, in, a, in a vast way uh, the right of crime victims to be apprised of court dates, to understand their rights and standing and protection from the defendant. And uh, there's another issue, Mitch, that's called collateral source, which is another that's been in the in the news lately or been in cases lately. And, and collateral source deals with the issue of a crime victim perhaps having uh, insurance in place to recover for certain medical expenses. Well, the mere fact that that crime victim has a means uh, by which they can recover in the form of insurance for medical expenses does not discount or eliminate uh, the court's ability to still impose restitution on the defendant. So the idea of there being the so-called double recovery uh, is not a valid argument for a defendant because courts have recently upheld and long, long held that insurance is really more of an investment and it's wrong to punish the victim uh, and to let the defendant off the hook for restitution. So, And let me explain a little, just for those who don't know the difference between criminal and civil law, why what you've just explained is so important and such a difference. Uh, generally speaking, you know, criminal law is the state, and it, we say the state, but it could be local government, county government, state, federal. It's the government versus an individual. You have violated a law of the jurisdiction and the state on behalf of all of us, the district attorney, the uh, county attorneys, state attorneys, general, uh, they are bringing a, a case against the individual. And generally the violation is the individual versus the state, right? And that if there's a fine, the fine goes to the state. It doesn't go to compensate a victim. Civil law is when two individuals sue each other. The state's not involved except to provide a judge and a, a venue for the trial and rules. But if you want to recover damages from one person to another, you sue in civil law, not in criminal law. So as I remind folks who don't understand the difference between civil and criminal, you know, someone could strike you violently with their fist. Now, that might be a crime. And you could be penalized by a fine or jail time for that crime. But if you want to recover the damage of being struck by someone incorrectly, that's a civil case, unless there's something like Marcy's Law in place, correct? Yeah, that's, that's right, Mitch. And then with respect to the damage component in a, in a tort claim, uh, you're seeking monetary damages. Um, Marcy's Law and the idea of restitution... Um, there really are two separate issues. There's always been or for, there's long been a right to restitution. Marcy's Law simply incorporates some of the past code sections. Uh, there's also a penalty and a fine component on the criminal side also. Uh, you know, the other thing, Mitch, that's interesting is, uh, and this is also a kind of an ethics role too, or issue, is the prosecutor's role uh, in a criminal case. Um, I'm often in a position where I have to inform a victim of a crime that I don't represent them personally, um, which is what I think makes Marcy's Law so important because 
Marcy's Law provides a lot of the uh, support and and power for there being an independent counsel to represent the victim and to keep them apprised of issues throughout the course of a criminal case because it's often pretty challenging uh, for a prosecutor uh, to maintain good relations with the crime victim and at the same time pursue justice uh, and and focus squarely upon uh, you know securing a conviction or seeking the just result in a case. Right, because the the crime victim many times for you their primary role is as a witness, correct? Yes. So, they, so yes. you're bringing the case on behalf of all of us for somebody who has violated the law. The victim is a witness for you who is representing all of us, not just the individual victim. And I'm sure it's hard for people to understand that distinction. Yeah, no, it, it's it's very difficult. So, you know, the Marcy's Law uh, and the right to have what's called Marcy's Counsel, uh, in my opinion, is a very, very important, uh, very important facet because it gives the crime victim the opportunity to seek independent counsel who can then appear on the case and track what's going on in the criminal case and keep the victim informed and discuss matters that the prosecutor might not directly address with the victim. So it's a, it's a very, very important uh, set of rules. And uh, once again, I, I tip my cap to all those that serve in the victim witness unit in our office because they are responsible for ensuring the Marcy's Law rights and keeping victims apprised of everything that goes on in court. Well, Stephen, when we come back after the break, I'd like to shift a little to the federal, talk a little about some of the federal laws that are coming up, issues that have been in the news. I'll prompt you. I'd like to talk about DACA again, and I'd like to talk about sanctuary cities, and we might have to talk a little about the Russia probe. Okay, good. Wow, that's a trifecta. All right, good. When we come back, we'll hit those topics, and you are listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We will be right back after this brief word from our sponsors. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? 
This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Got to win at any cost No golden rule, no line you haven't crossed Who cares if Mother Earth's in tatters You're the only one that matters Sorry, buddy, you've already lost I have a <laughs> Welcome back to Wax Kevin <laughs> Kevin, what did you tee up there? You know, I just thought it was appropriate I just figured you are talking about ethics and, you know <laughs> this seemed to hit the right spot. It's great. Good choice. That's Kevin Gassman, our engineer. Kevin brings us a, a special flavor of song each week, and uh, we leave it up to Kevin to pick something that meets the theme. Good job, Kevin. <laughs> uh, so, Stephen, I'd like to to bring up a couple of just a couple of national items, federal items that that came up this week. Um, one of them, I'd like to to ask you about because you know your life has been as a district attorney on the prosecutor side we we heard in the news that in the special prosecutor case where Robert Mueller who's a federal special prosecutor uh, evidently uh, searched and seized information with former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort I don't want to go through the politics of all that. I was really wanted to ask you more strategically about something I heard that that I I found a little surprising, and I just wondered what your thoughts were about it, because it became known in the news that as part of that search and seizure of information, the the investigators or attorneys for the special prosecutor informed Paul Manafort, who's a target of interest, that they intended to indict him. And 
and I don't want to go to the issue of whether he's indictable or not. It just surprised me that a prosecutor would tell somebody in advance that that was their intent. And and I just wondered if you had some thoughts about, you know, obviously we don't know any more than we read in the newspapers, but as a strategy for a prosecutor, when people see that, I'm sure people are confused and say, well, why would he say that? What Can you give us any guidance? What? Why would that fit into a prosecutor's strategy? Yeah, you know, Mitch, I don't think it really would fit into a prosecutor's strategy, nor would I think that there'd be a setting in which that would normally arise, that kind of scenario would arise where there'd be direct communication to the target of an investigation like that. Uh, You know, typically what happens is there's an investigative component to any kind of a case, and there's some kind of an investigative agency that handles the, the legwork and the gathering of information and the evidence gathering. So this idea of there being a direct communication to the target that there's an intention to indict uh, is, is novel. Um, I'm not quite ready to say it's rogue conduct, but it's certainly unusual. And the indictment is what? Because, again, people read stories and, and see legal terms. And, you know, you and I know what an indictment is, but a lot of people might go, what does that mean? Now, what is yeah. an indictment? Ooh, sounds yeah, good. it does. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It does. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a judgment of guilt. No, it's not. But it does tend to be kind of a showstopper when you hear it. That's true. Good point. So an indictment is actually... Uh, a term used to define what happens if there is a case presented to a grand jury. So a grand jury would convene, and they are citizens from the community that sit for a certain number of, it can vary, but typically they would be um, on call or serve as a panel to sit in judgment and to gauge and assess evidence that's presented. And If the grand jury, uh, and I think by analogy you can think of them as a regular jury, they'd be a group that's impaneled to hear a certain set of facts. If they find that there is sufficient evidence to warrant charges, they return what's called a true bill, which then turns into a charging document that is called an indictment. So many times you've heard the term criminal complaint, Well, an indictment is similar, it's just that the means by which you get to the point of there being a formal pleading is quite different. And you've explained before, there there are two different routes, I believe, you can go to get an indictment. We've talked about it more in a local setting, uh, in a criminal case. But if a, a district attorney or a prosecutor believes that they have enough information, they can go directly to a judge, I guess, and ask for an indictment directly, not going to the grand jury. If they want to have additional scrutiny, they can take the case to the grand jury. Am, am I getting that correct? Uh, they would typically go to a grand jury. Okay, it would. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and then again, a reminder that an indictment is not a finding of guilt by any means, right? What's the standard of of proof for an indictment? Yeah, no, that's another good uh, point, Mitch. So it's it's a much lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the standard actually for an indictment is really more uh, 
reasonable belief that the charges are true. So more likely, isn't that the lowest of kind of the legal standards? And it's about that spectrum before. Yeah, it's it's closer to the civil standard. Uh, which is preponderance of the evidence. So it's a much lower standard. The other thing about the presentation at at grand jury is that uh, there is no uh, counsel present to represent the target or the defendant in the case. Uh, the, The defendant's counsel has an opportunity to provide information prior to the uh, actual proceedings, but they do not have a seat at the table. So many people say that it is a, uh, a lopsided affair. But it's, it's the requirement for the prosecutor to prove that they have a reasonable belief that the charges should be brought. And if they can't meet that threshold, then the grand jury does, isn't it called a no bill? Uh, they were, yeah, it's either a true bill, which means that they find that there is sufficient evidence, um, or they find that there isn't sufficient evidence. That's right. That's right. So, again, it's just a reminder that when you read stories like that, that it it sounds as if a determination has been made. Yeah. It does sound ominous, but it also sounds like a determination has been made, and, and that is not the role of the grand jury, even though it's called a jury. Uh, it is merely a initial step of a criminal proceeding to protect the interests of the target, and then it moves then into an adversary proceeding where you're attorney is there to represent you, you're allowed to bring your own evidence, you're allowed to challenge the evidence of the prosecutor, and none of that happens in the process of an indictment, right? Well, you know, Mitch, I can add one thing about that. It's a li- That's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, although the defendant does not have a right to have his counsel present during the grand jury, there is definitely an opportunity for the defendant's counsel to provide information that he or she wishes to be presented at the grand jury. So, for instance, in California, there's case law that that clearly gives uh, authority to a defense attorney to still provide information to the prosecution. So, another way of looking at it is that there's an obligation on the part of the prosecution to give notice, usually in the form of a request or an invitation, to provide information that they think may serve as mitigation. And whether or not the defense attorney decides to do it or not is probably 80% tactical in terms of whether or not they choose to present it at that time. But the reminder, more than anything, is this is the very, very beginning of a criminal prosecution and is not anywhere near a determination of guilt. And that, that's, that's right. what I think I want everyone to remember, that you, you read the stories in the newspaper, you hear it on the news, and you go, oh my gosh, somebody's being indicted. They must have been found guilty of something, and that's absolutely not true. They mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. started the process, not concluded the process. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, let me just briefly, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to bring up, just briefly, a topic that we've had entire shows on before. Uh, California has just finished their legislative session and sent a whole bushel full of bills to the governor uh, for, for his signature. Um, but one of them is to extend additional protections under the area of sanctuary and sanctuary cities, sanctuary jurisdictions. Uh, and I just I call that out because California has been very forward in that. 
and the Attorney General of the United States has been no less forward in his belief that the federal government, and particularly the Attorney General, has the opportunity to use federal funds to leverage local participation in federal enforcement of immigration laws. And that is a classic conflict of federal versus states' rights. And, and rather than weigh in on one side or the other in the short time we have, I just want to call everybody's attention to this is a truly beautiful example of the constitutional balances in the United States. We have a federal constitution that gives the attorney general and the federal government rights to do things, particularly in this case related to immigration law, because that is a federal jurisdiction. And you have states who have their own constitution that allows police and legislatures to have authority over uh, many aspects of the protection of their citizens at the local level. And the issue of sanctuary cities brings those two into as clear a discussion of how we want to balance those two rights as anything I can think of in a long time. Yeah, you're right, Mitch. There's there's incredible tension there, and the two issues are inextricably tied. And, you know, I think it's probably a good topic for us to take on exclusively in one of our programs. And I think what we ought to do is secure some guests for that and uh, maybe even do a two-part segment on it because the interplay between local law enforcement and their quest to uh, enforce laws on a local level and then the interplay between the federal rules is it is a major major tension point uh, and it came and into the news because California has passed legislation sent it to the governor to try to clarify the the, the role or the position of state and local uh, law enforcement uh, versus federal enforcement. And actually, I think all it's done is is highlight the conflict, <laughs> not resolve the issue. Yeah, no, that's right. So what's up for next week, Mitch? Are we going to do uh, some Supreme Court cases? We are indeed. We're going to have our regular guest co-host, Michael Cohen, with the law firm of Shepard Mullen. He's also a constitutional law professor. And a, a shout out to Michael Cohen and Professor Daniel Lamb, who did a fabulous job in working with our students for our constitutional law Heisler Moot Court this past week, uh, where they also talked about a conflict of federal versus state law happened to be on the topic of cannabis last week. Uh, but Michael will be here to give us an update on the Supreme Court cases that are pending and recently decided, which is something we have to do pr on a pretty regular basis these days because there have been a lot of major issues going through this court. So, Stephen, another great show. Thank you for, for bringing up the issue of Marcy's Law. Uh, hopefully, we've helped everybody understand a few additional key issues of items that were in the news and the headlines this week and that we've brought greater clarity to, to you understanding the law. Yeah, as thanks. We, thank you, Stephen. And as we remind you every week, you can hear an archive of today's program and previous programs on the voiceamerica.com business channel, and you can also access them on wagnerandwinnick.com. As we remind you every single week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. 
finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 